in this series of talks. This is the second of four. I'm telling the story of one part of what happened in the 16th century through a particular lens, a particular focus. It's such a long and complicated process. 150, 200 year process that plays out. I'm talking about the period mainly between 1517 and 1560, which is just the beginning of that process. It keeps going on and on and on until uh, really the end of the next century. So understand, this is, uh, you might say, the heart of the story, the heart of the breaking apart of Christendom that took place. But it's just the beginning. I'm telling it through, as I said, a particular lens, and that is an emphasis on the printed word. Historians now look upon this as one of the most important reasons why the Reformation, what we think of as the Reformation, happened. The printed word. The revolution that took place in the 16th century with regard to the printed word. And, of course, the reason that it happened, at least one of the reasons it happened, is because of the availability of the printing press and, more specifically, movable type a new technology, a fundamental technological shift in communication. It already was beginning to produce a change in the previous century, the 15th century, and then it kind of exploded in the 16th century. And if you want to get a specific kind of time period in mind, the 1520s and 1530s is when this explosion took place, comparable, I think, to what has taken place in our time in roughly the 1990s and thereafter, with the invention of the Internet and a kind of transformation in the way most people, including old guys like me, uh, receive information, think about things, communicate with other people. Same thing, different technology, 1520s, 1530s. What had happened before this explosion that took place, starting in roughly 1517 with the posting of those famous theses, is that a certain percentage of the population, we tend today think of them as upper middle class people, uh, aspiring upper middle class people in a society, a set of societies where that class structure had not yet emerged, well, that's the beginning of modernization, the emergence of a middle class, people who are experiencing some social mobility or aspire to social mobility. Those people in particular, no more than 20% of the population throughout the 16th century, develop an appetite for the printed word. An appetite for the printed word, which leads some of them to learn to read and write. And then to want to develop institutions which enable people to read and write. Schools, the beginning of libraries, and a whole series of other things which uh, transform their lives but also create a certain sensibility, that's the way I want to talk about it, with regard to religion. Their kind of idea of religion, of what religion ought to be, shifts and it shifts dramatically in the churches that eventually are formed that are called Protestant. We worship a certain way. To this day, we worship a certain way which is different than what goes on at Holy Trinity down there at Georgetown. It's a different worship experience. If you're 
as staunchly Protestant as I am, you sort of, and I think probably many of you are, you sort of walk into church with a certain expectation. And it's a different expectation, I assure you, than a good Roman Catholic, especially an old-fashioned Roman Catholic. Today, through, in, through this series of talks, I'm trying to explain something of how that happened. The series of talks is designed to show how it happened uh, with a variety of different kinds of ideas and figures. Last week I talked about Martin Luther, who was the, the prophet of all of this, the man who really got the ball rolling. There's a wonderful book out, uh, came out in this season of commemoration of this anniversary that I commend to you. It's written by a scholar, but it's a very accessible, popular book called Brand Luther. Brand Luther, and it's really about this idea that Luther early on figured out that the printing press was his friend and took advantage of it, exploited it uh, with a vengeance, and became in the process, this is one of the reasons why the Reformation succeeded in a way that previous efforts had not succeeded. He became a popular folk hero. became a folk hero because all kinds of people all over the continent of Europe were able to get access in translation, very quickly in translation, to works by Luther. So they're all the way over there in Antwerp, or all the way over there in Oxford, or all the way over there in Paris. They are getting access to Luther fairly quickly. It sort of almost goes viral, we would say today. And there are people in Paris, John, one of whom is eventually is John Calvin, who say, did you read that Luther thing? Did you read that Luther thing? What do you think of that Luther thing? And then very quickly, are you on Team Luther? Or on, are you on the other side? And that starts happening very quickly, 1520s. Martin Luther wrote almost in a frenzy. He wrote uh, essays. And, of course, his most important contribution of all in addition to essays and sermons, was the translation of the Bible into the vernacular. Into the vernacular. Let me pause and just say that again. Translation of the Bible into the vernacular. I'll say it again. Translation of the Bible into the vernacular. That, more than anything else, is the source of who we are today, us in this room. Or I should say, translation of the Bible into the vernacular, an illegal, forbidden act. People in that time were burned at the stake for doing that. You know? Translation of the Bible into the vernacular, and then through the printing press, making it available to Tom, Dick, and Mary, you know, real quick. And saying to Tom, Dick, and Mary, read it, read, read it for yourself. And I hope you see, I mean, that's a dangerous idea. You can understand why people might get on the other side a little upset about that. It was forbidden. Eventually you get the papal index in 1560, and it's on the list of forbidden books. I kid you not. The Bible. <laughs> well, but, but it's a perfectly sensible response. If you think, here's, here's the idea, and this will be a test of whether or not you're a Protestant, if you think people can read it intelligently for themselves. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's two weeks from now. But, but because, and, and by the way, there's, you know, this conference we're going to have, I'm sure that's going to be a big debate. Because there are people who say, looking at the, shall we say, the uh, spectacle of Protestantism today, 
Maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Huh? Now today I want to talk about a very well one other idea about Luther. Luther not only translated the Bible, but he obviously put a certain, we would say today, spin on it. He thought correctly, I think, that he was recovering the gospel. By the way, that, those are fighting words. You know, if you say that too loud, even now at Georgetown, people are going to say, are you one of those people? Just think of it. Recover the gospel. I mean, talk about in your face, pardon me. I mean, that is just about as effective. The implication is the Roman Catholics had lost it, and it had to be recovered. <sighs> That's what he did. And again, theologically, if you're a Protestant, you probably have to believe that. I think that's part of what it means to be a Protestant. But in addition to that, he put a certain additional spin on Scripture, which is summarized beautifully in the title of one of his short essays that I talked about last time called The Freedom of the Christian. Now it's called The Freedom of the Christian. Or no, it used to be called The Freedom of the Christian Man, and now it's called The Freedom of the Christian for obvious reasons. But think about that. It held up the following idea. It was, it was anti-Catholic as you could get. He drew a parallel between the situation of Christians, new Christians. This thing was, Christianity was being invented at the time of Paul. He reads Romans and other texts and says, like, the message there is, if you're going to be a Christian, you're sort of liberated from all that Old Testament foolishness. Freedom of the Christian man. You know, first century. Now, Luther shrewdly drew a parallel between that and the 16th century and said, well, the Catholics have built up all of this stuff, this falderall, these rules, these regulations, these... And he says, I don't think that's what the gospel is. The gospel is liberation from all that stuff. And, of course, the more fundamental claim is we're saved by grace and not by works. There again, I mean, from the point of theologically, that's just in your face. I have used the phrase, and I don't think it's inappropriate to say what's going on here is a reinvention, a reconstitution, a redefinition of the very substance of Christianity. Anyway, he writes this essay called Freedom of the Christian Man, which just goes wildfire because it has got this idea, which again, Roman Catholics sort of associate Protestants with to this day, that Christianity is about liberation from all kinds of man-made rules and regulations. Now, that's an explosive idea. Today I want to talk about the explosion, which scared Luther. This guy, Munzer. It's not the name of a cheese. It's the name of a man. Munzer. Munzer. Uh, a symbol of what happened just almost immediately as soon as Luther's ideas began to get into currency. I said last time, and I'll say it again, I think Luther, I, I think I, I, I stand in awe of his courage, of his insight, of his creativity, but he was a little bit naive on more than one count, a little bit naive. And one of the things that symbolizes that naivete is his shock when People began reading the Bible for themselves and came to different conclusions. 
somehow, I mean, it, it's, today we have so much history to sort of put this in perspective, but his thought was that if people just could somehow be get out of their minds all of this, and he's a Catholic monk, Catholic nonsense, and read, just read it for themselves, they will see the essential truth of the matter. And to some extent that was borne out, I want to stress. To some extent that was borne out, because Protestants did on a lot of things agree. And they, they took it to mean, if you just read the Bible in a fresh way, you would see it, see the truth of it. But also, very quickly, I mean within a couple of years, I'm sure from Luther's point of view it was within a couple of seconds, disagreements began to develop. And those disagreements are, of course, the source of what I'm going to characterize here as the Protestant splintering. Very quickly, 1520s. And they didn't disagree about small matters. They agreed about, about a lot of things, above all the authority of Scripture. And the fact, the authority of Scripture implies the following. If you're going to really take Scripture as your authority in that time, then you have to critique everything that you have inherited in the light of Scripture, which means you're going to have to change a lot of things. Very quickly, there were people, and Munzer was one of them, who called themselves, who were called, boy, I almost mischaracterized, who called themselves Anna. No, I still, still got it wrong. Who were called by their enemies Anabaptists. Anabaptists. Anybody know what the term means, literally? Anabaptist? Hmm? Well, I had three grandparents who were Anabaptists. Okay, well, what does it mean? Well, all I know about it is that they didn't believe in joining the church or baptism until oh. they were, like, in their mid Okay, but I'm not, uh, literally, uh, that's right. But, 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 the, but the term literally means rebaptizer. Rebaptizer. Now, it was a really pejorative put down, you know, because what it implied was that they'd already been baptized and then they required people to be baptized again. And of course, the issue here is infant baptism. Now, keep in mind, you're rethinking everything. Protestants, by the way, looked at the seven sacraments and said, we can only find biblical justification for two of them. Knock out five of them. Just, just imagine. You know, like, sort of like, suppose we could line up here today, I don't know, 12 things that Presbyterians believe in and actively practice, and somebody comes along and says, eh, there's only biblical justification for three of them. Knock out nine of them. I think we would get a little on edge. Well, that's what they did. And the two, of course, were Holy Communion, what we call Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, and baptism. But immediately, there was disagreement about baptism. And if you have any Baptists or former Baptists or whatever in the family, as I do, uh, then very quickly you learn that there's a rather important, difficult issue here. Is there biblical justification for infant baptism? Now, I guess, my guess is that if I just threw that open for a discussion here, I could stop talking because, <laughs> because there would be an hour or more of the hands going up and people saying, so I'm, I'm, we're not going to do that. But it just illustrates the point. It is, it is a, to this day, a really contested issue. I happen to think the biblical evidence is weak. I'll say that, which complicates the Reformation story a lot. I, I'm not saying there's no justification, but there's, it's not, not as strong as 
Well, where, see, where, <laughs> where is there any? It has to do with the baptism of whole families in the, in the New Testament. If, if you baptize whole families, then people say by inference, I hope you see. Then it had to be in baptism of children. That's not the strongest justification. I mean, it, it's, it is a justification. But, and, of course, the other side of the coin is there's plenty of evidence of believer baptism, as it's called, of adults. I mean, that's the whole story of baptism in the New Testament, frankly. People being turned around as adults, etc. So, there were people who strongly insisted that anything connected with, with adult baptism or with, with the baptism of children, was contrary to Scripture, got to get rid of it. And they said it was Roman, just to dot the I. It's a Roman practice, and we've got to get rid of it. Anabaptists were these people. The Anabaptists had a lot of other beliefs, too, which I won't catalog here, but just to give you the, that's sort of the heart of it. Generally, therefore, they are known as the heart of what came to be known as the left wing or the radical reformation. There's a spectrum, and by the way, you can just line up the Reformation of uh, going away from people who are willing to take one step away from Roman Catholicism or one and a half, people who are going to take three or four, like Lutherans, people who are willing to take five or six, Reformed, people who are willing to take seven or eight, the Radical Reformation, which is for, for, from the Roman Catholic point of view, just passing out beyond any reasonable position like Baptist, which is, makes it, the current political situation so ironic. You know, the sort of close political alignment between Roman Catholic bishops and people who are evangelicals who very often are very far to the left from the ecclesiastical point of view. It's just, it, it's fascinating. Now, one of the key people in that Anabaptist movement early on was this guy called Munzer. A guy called Munzer, Thomas Munzer. You don't know as much about Munzer probably as you do about Luther or Calvin. Uh, it's partly this tradition in which we stand, but it's also because he is the pioneer, the leader of something which turned out to be, in a variety of senses, a failure. But Martin Luther was aware of him. Boy, was he aware of him. Munzer took the key idea of Luther's essay and a series of sermons on Christian liberty quite literally. Going back to the point I said about this is an explosive idea. This is an explosive idea. Christian liberty. And Christian liberty, if you think about it, is closely linked to another idea, which is equality. Yeah. Each of us, free to read the Bible for ourselves. Make up your own mind. Think about that. Well, do we need clergy? And if so, how much authority should they have? And on and on. And by the way, does this apply, crucial question, does this apply to just the church or does it also apply to social institutions and political institutions? I hope you see that could be really dynamite. If you say we're free and we're also equal and we have a right to control our own destiny... Da, 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 da. Who needs a king? What? Who needs a king? Who needs a king? I mean, it's, well, who needs nobles? Who needs whatever? Now, very quickly, 
as Luther's ideas spread, and by the way, Luther's ideas spread through the printing press, not just in terms of treatises. The sermon, by the way, the sermon became extraordinarily popular in the 1520s. One of the coolest things to do, believe it or not, was to go to church and hear somebody stand up there and preach a real sermon. There were crowds who went to hear good preaching, which was a kind of innovation. There was a, there, and by the way, there is a I'm sure you all know, there's a Protestant style to preaching, or several Protestant styles to preaching. That flourishes in this period, and one of the, one of the, some of the leading figures, like Luther and Calvin, were just brilliant pulpiteers. And people would go there to sort of, they, they could hardly get enough of it, believe it or not. You know? So, partly in that way, but also these printed pamphlets that were just turned out, you know, cheap paper. You know, get it in his hands. So Luther's sermons, essays of other people, and then, believe it or not, cartoons and other things, you know, in flyers, even if you were not literate, you could sort of get the point. You know, especially a particularly snotty characterization of some Catholic bishop. You know, you can just imagine, it'd be like the cartoons on, on the editorial page of the Washington Post. You know, making fun of. So you have all of that going on. And people get aware of, people become aware of very quickly this kind of liberty idea. Christianity is about freeing things up. And Munzer and a series of other people just sort of fed on that, promoted that idea. And that idea sort of becomes what? A kind of current, a cultural current in people's lives. And you start having, and this is the thing which erupts very quickly, a movement in the direction of political and ecclesiastical rebellion, outright rebellion. One of the most important things you need to know about the Protestant Reformation in order to have a sense of what really went on is that there was in the middle of the 1520s something called the Peasants' Revolt, which was, I've heard it characterized this way by, by historians, as the largest and most dramatic upheaval of its kind prior to the French Revolution. So think, I'm sure everybody's got in their minds a certain image of the French Revolution, pitch, pitchforks and all, something akin to that. Over 100,000 people eventually lost their lives in the peasant revolt, which swept across Germany in a period of two or three years, and then was brutally suppressed. Now that was connected directly with this Reformation thing. Indeed, it became in the minds of all kinds of people all over the face of Europe, the, a sort of a sense, that's what the Reformation is about. Now, if you were sympathetic to that revolt, you would say, yes, yes, yes. But if you were opposed to it, or if you were nervous about it, you could, of course, have just the opposite reaction. Now, back to Munzer. Because Munzer is his 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 identity, his ideas are intimately connected with the peasants' revolt. Everybody have a copy of the quotations here? I'm tempted to say quotations from Chairman Thomas. Here, anybody need one? Anybody need one? Right. 
There are actually two sets of quotations here. One from 12 Articles of the Upper Swabian Peasants, 1525. These are the kinds of ideas which led to the Peasants' Revolt. Peasants are getting really juiced up about social change because of the Reformation. Or you might put if you were a little more cautiously, you might say there was social ferment in the air. Sort of, you know, people were agitated. Peasants were, in this period, victimized by all kinds of things, these peasants, and they were kind of stimulated and felt legitimized. This, in my line of work, we talk a lot about the legitimation of people's beliefs. People have to have a sense that I have a right to hold these beliefs. Well, the Reformation, especially Luther's ideas about liberty, gave people authorization to think that these were, you know, those were okay ideas to hold. Now, I'm going to comment on those ideas in just a second. So that's the context, those demands. By the way, this is, this is akin to, the, these, these demands were articulated by something akin to a, a, a sort of New England town meeting. You know, a bunch of peasants, uh, their, their leaders, you know, the local leader going to some regional gathering, and they are arguing things out, and they come up with this. And by the way, they are encouraged. Now let me add the picture here. They are encouraged by people like Munzer, who are priests. And priests still, even among these people who are sort of moving in the Protestant direction, have a certain authority. They can read and write after all, and they can speak, and they, can, they have all those skills. And think of Thomas Munzer kind of like a liberation theologian in Latin America. I kid you not. He's that kind of figure. And he's saying, get together, organize. You know, he's a, if I, another way to put it would be to say he's sort of an ecclesiastical version of a community organizer. And he's saying, get together, organize, articulate your demands because we're going we're gonna to take them to the princes and we're going to talk to the princes about change. It needs to happen. And then you get this, the other side of the coin, the sermon. The sermon, which is the best known thing that we have from Munzer. Munzer was not a theologian, he was a pastor, educator a bit, with uh, theological ideas that were heavily influenced by Luther. But he was, on many different levels, more radical than Luther. Uh, he's a contemporary of Luther. He uh, hangs out in Wittenberg a lot. So he's sort of in that world, uh, the, the world of sort of educated people. But he's, uh, he's one of those people who takes things far more radically than the, even the <coughs> prophetic voice of, of Martin Luther. When I characterize him as a radical, what do I mean? I want to, I want to list several things. He was a radical on about four different fronts. And once it was fully clear what he stood for, Martin Luther disagreed with him, dissented from him, made it very clear to people. I, I don't agree with that guy. Of course, the problem is the horse is out of the barn. And Luther, and, and by the way, Munzer's not alone. There are Karlstadt and a whole series of figures who sort of play this role, this what's now called the radical Reformation role. Number one, he was more radical with regard to ecclesiastical reform than Martin Luther. 
I've already given you a summary of what that means, sort of, you know, you can position people vis-a-vis the Roman church, two steps, four steps, six steps. These were the people who went farthest, were inclined to go farthest. Their position on baptism was just a symbol of that, but it's such a dramatic one. Another example of it, his theology of the Eucharist. Now, here's what a radical believed about the Eucharist. And keep in mind that for Roman Catholics then, and to some extent now, I want to stress this, that's the heart of religion. Participation in the Mass is it. We tend to say, note, word and sacrament, and frankly, if you look at the way our worship is conducted, word is privileged over sacrament. That's my own take on it. We, do the, we have a sermon every Sunday, after all. I don't think you have Holy Communion here every Sunday, do you? No. Uh, see, that's, that's a, think about that. That's a dramatic statement. His position with regard to what goes on in Holy Communion, quite apart from its frequency, is the following. It's a memorial service. Now, I assure you, in theological conversations, them's fighting words. What do I mean by memorial service? Well, you know, we're, we're, you know it's like Veterans Day, you know? What you, you're remembering what went on. I, I don't think anybody, even the staunchest patriot in this room, is going to say that Veterans Day celebrations are, or commemorations or whatever the term is, that that's a sacrament. I don't think so. What is a sacrament? It is something that you experience which is transformative in your own life in a kind of spiritually significant way. There's something about that mystery, that's the Roman Catholic way of talking about it, there's something about that mystery that actually is spiritually nurturing and sustaining in some strong way. Technical word for it is metaphysically. It actually changes the person. That's why it's so important to keep participating in it. Well, the radical Protestant tendency is to say, oh, come on. Especially when it comes to the explanation of what actually goes on. A person who had very strong Anabaptist tendencies was somebody in our tradition called Zwingli, who fought with Luther over this issue because he said it's just a memorial service. And when, when they got down to talking about this particular phrase, this is my body broken for you, what's that mean? What's that mean? Now, from the point of view of people who believe in transubstantiation, it is literally Christ's body, right? And Zwingli said to Luther in a famous exchange about this, Martin, you really, you don't believe that literally, do you? And Martin looked at him and said, don't you? <laughs> and then, like he said, of course I don't believe that. Of course, note, think about how rationalistic that is. Of course I don't believe it's literally, it's metaphorically. Well, you're on your way to a great spiritual divide there. And that's what Luther said in, in, in looking to Zwingli. He said, famous phrase is, we are not of the same spirit. <laughs> you know, that's Martin Luther. <laughs> now. Oh, yes. I mean, he was, he was the, mo- the most devout of devout and, and kind of moved in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an emotionally compelling way by all of this. Now, I, I'm not, believe you me, I'm a reformed person, but I, I do respect the deep piety that's connected with that. Now, 
This man we're talking about, Munchser, was a radical on this whole business of what's sometimes characterized as the desacralization of the sacrament. It's just a memorial service. We're just remembering that, you know, there was a, something that happened in the life of Jesus. Just remembering. Just remembering. Well, from a Roman Catholic point of view, that is not only heresy, but it's kind of blasphemous. So he was an ecclesiastical radical in that sense. He also thought that clergy, he being one, that clergy had no special authority in the life of the church except what they could persuade people to. Well, that's a very democratic notion of clergy authority. He also believed, and it's on that list there, think about it, by the way, just think about it. This, this, this statement of demands of the Swabian peasants is what a fairly radical person would claim in those days. That's what it meant to be a radical. I, from my point of view, they're very moderate claims. Like, here's this really, 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 just dramatic idea, the right to choose and depose their own pastors. Whew. Boy, that's a radical idea, you know? Well, of course, we take it for granted, but from their point of view, we, we take it for granted, but from their point of view, man, that's, I mean, if you're, if you're assuming episcopacy is central to the life of the church and bishops make these appointments, what business do ordinary church people what business have they got being involved in that, literally at all? Well, Munzer was kind of, you know, a radical on that. Absolutely, they have a right to choose their pastor and depose their pastor. You know, they don't like his preaching. He was radical on that score. He was a, he was a social radical. Now, a lot of the Swabian peasant demands there articulate things that, Mar that, that Thomas Munzer believed. I love this third one here. By the way, it's, I mistyped one word in it. Note, most of the people, most of his audience are serfs, which means they're tied to the land. Their social status is determined by, by birth. And they say, well, we, here's what we want. We want release from serfdom, please. Which would mean what? They would become free people. Legally, free people. Be able to go where they want to go. Not tied to the land, but note, note the phrase, release from serfdom in as much as it should be we men are free as Christians. That's, that's a direct quotation of Martin Luther. Men are free as Christians? Okay, no serfdom, please. Now, if you're a prince, you might say, not so fast. But note, that's, that's a radical idea in the time. A lot of this, by the way, Sometimes I think nothing new under the sun. A lot of it has to do with taxes. If you look there very carefully, a lot of, you might say, this is the Swabian peasant's proposal for tax reform. I kid you not. So, and by the way, Munzer would embrace all of those ideas and probably add three or four others, but I hope you see what's implied there. Free things up, and clearly what's kind of implied there is land reform, you know, sort of move in the direction of everybody getting his own piece of land. It's all kind of... So he was that kind of radical. And by the way, that's plenty radical stuff in the 16th century. Could you give me some perspective on that? This yeah. guy dies at 36. He was a religious person. Yes. I'm coming. I'm, just stay with me. Stay with me. I'm not done. <laughs> Believe you me, I'm giving the short version of this story. 
Third thing, he was a radical with regard to the source of religious knowledge. You might say, why does that matter? Well, here's, here's what. Here's what I have in mind. If you read the Bible, not even carefully, just, just have some knowledge of it, you find the following. There are a lot of people in the Bible who are held up, who are, who are visionaries, literally. They see visions, right? See visions. Think of all those Old Testament figures. They see visions, and they explain, they articulate their visions. And those visions become, what, important for peoples who are following in their lives. Indeed, that's a good part of what it means to be a prophet, right? See visions. What's the status of visions once you establish the authority of Scripture itself? <laughs> what's, I'll say it again. What's the status of visions once you establish and you say, we're going to base our religion on the Bible? The Bible, which is itself a source of all kinds of visions, right? Now, one possibility would be this. Well, we're looking forward to new visions. People who... What? Dream dreams, see things, articulate things, have fresh ideas. That's Munzer. Munzer thinks he's, he's got visions. The Lord told me. You know, the, 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 the sort of the key idea, think about the way the prophet spoke over and over again. Thus saith the Lord. Think about that. You might say, well, where'd you get that idea? Uh, had that vision. Last night, the Lord told me. Now, this is a, I hope you see this is a crucial turning point. This is a crucial turning point in the whole development of Protestantism. Because Martin Luther heard that and said, No! No! Pardon me. I mean, and he saw the danger immediately. I hope you see. This is, this is kind of spiritual and intellectual anarchy, right? If every Tom, Dick, and at this point Harry can say, I had a vision last night, and the Lord told me that we're all supposed to be vegetarians. Well, what are you going to do with that? Now, with very few exceptions, and by the way, this is part of the issue between Protestants and a category of people who are loosely connected to the Protestant Reformation called Pentecostals. Are Pentecostals Protestants or not? Not on this point, because they believe in visions. Well, at the time of the Reformation, there was a closure that took place. Assert the authority of Scripture, but not open the door to private revelation. And boy, did, and I would say even more emphatically, did we in the Reformed tradition develop that. We are people, boy are we people of the book. It won't surprise you. This is a church, after all, of highly educated people, many of whom are lawyers. I'll talk about that next week. Law. You know, that's a very important part of it. Anyway, Munzer was a, a visionary and a kind of somebody who played on his visionary capacity. Well, that made him a radical. I hope you see why. That's a kind of authority that you claim for yourself. And then the final thing. He believed, with a vengeance, I want to say, in the legitimacy of violence. Take up the sword. Now, I have taken 
it upon myself to provide you with that text from Munzer's sermon so that you could get a feel for that. And by the way, I think it's pretty, pretty shrewdly done. It's, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not about to tell you that this, is, that this is the right way to think, but look at it. Read it for yourself. It's an astonishingly provocative statement about not just Christian religion generally, but the New Testament and even the figure of Jesus with respect to using the sword. Well, see, we're already getting an argument here, which he never did. What about that money changers thing? Well, that was oh, okay, okay. I understand. I understand. But you see what... Now, I said last week... Well, first, let me, let me give you context here. The sermon... That's a, that's a series of quotations from a long sermon. That sermon was preached 1524 in a setting in which princes were present, authority figures. I I hope you get the sense of the high drama here. You know, you got these Swabian peasants who were saying, we want change, we want change, and here are our demands, good sir. We want change. And they're kind of threatening. And Munzer being invited, of all things, to preach this sermon in a castle, church, does that, and right, you might say, going right at the princes. I mean, this is kind of, if we were Jewish, we would say chutzpah with a vengeance. You know, it goes right at them to say the following. I want to point out three or four things there. Go, look at it for yourself. And if you're interested, go, you can find it on the web. Go find the whole sermon. And by the way, this should shock you if you have associated Anabaptists, as you properly should, with pacifism. I mean, you, you might think, well, who, who is this guy? I'm, I'm, about to, I'm going to tell you before the hour's up. But the, the, the Anabaptists were very conflicted about the issue of violence in this early stage. I want to say three or four things about this sermon, the remarkable things about this sermon. Things that strike me as, 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 first of all, one thing about it which is not atypical, it is thoroughly typical of Protestants in this period. This is, this, is, this is the beginning of the storm, just the beginning of the storm. Martin Luther, once, I, I said last week and I'll say it again, I want to stress this, nobody planned the Protestant Reformation. It wasn't like there was a committee and said we're going to have a Reformation. They stumbled into it. They were all reformers. They wanted to reform the church. They didn't want to walk out of the church. Their appeals for reform, we want a church council, were, were, were sort of denied. Not only that, they met with a wall of resistance. And when they pushed back, they were thrown out of the church and they were threatened with not just excommunication, but the loss of their lives. This was, after all, most of it in this, in this sort of intimate connection between civil authority and ecclesiastical authorities. And Luther is free and able to do his work only because he has political protection. The appeal to the princes is cast in the most vitriolic language with regard to the Roman Catholic Church. Because once they were kicked out, 
Boy, did they. Well, here's what they thought. They said it. They didn't mince words. You know, we look at today, some of these statements you might say, boy, they need a little PR help. You know, but they went, you might say, for the jugular routinely. For example, Martin Luther in 1520 characterizes in one of his famous essays, well, the title of the essay is The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. He says, the Roman Catholic Church is now an instrument of the devil. You know, and the Pope is the Antichrist. You know, not, not, he's not speaking loosely there. I mean, this is not, you know, <laughs> well, but, but not only that, he's, he means it in a quite literal sense. There is an Antichrist at work in the world, and the Pope is the instrument of the Antichrist. And then they would use other words, and you'll see them all sprinkled all the way through Munzer's. And Munzer is simply picking up on that. He's simply following in that vein. They use words like tyranny. The tyranny of the Roman Catholic. And why do they use the word tyranny? Because they are fiercely, and it's ironic because most of them are priests, they are fiercely anti-clerical. By the way, let me just say parenthetically, it's very interesting to me that still there's a very strong current of anti-clericalism in Roman Catholicism. That's been one of my most biggest surprises about all these years of teaching at Georgetown. There, there's, you know, I mean, I'm in, in an environment where all these very progressive priests and, you know, they're friends with the students and so forth. But still, there is this undercurrent of they're running the church as they are, and we're not. We're subjects, and they're running things. That leads you to anti-clericalism, because if anything goes wrong, like with regard to this stuff, long history of sexual offenses, for example, they can say, well, it's, it's, it's happening that way because they're in charge. Period. We don't have that to nearly the same degree. It's fascinating. It's part of the culture of Protestantism to have a very different relationship between, even, even when I've been in a congregation where we had a clergy person who was guilty of some of those offenses, but the mood was very different, in part because we were thinking of it as our enterprise, where they were employed. I hope you see the difference. Well, Anti-clericalism, just look at that document. It is filled with almost a kind of fiery anti-clericalism. Now he's talking to princes. Second thing to note is the theology of that emphasizes something which we hear about hardly ever. I may not have hit the right Sunday at Westminster, but I don't think what I'm about to say comes up much in preaching. And that's the wrath of God. The wrath of God. The righteous indignation of God. Which is a biblical theme, let's be clear. It's not a small theme. God is, a lot of the time, our God, at least the one that's in the, in the Bible, is full of offense, taking offense, I'm putting it gently. Angry. Doesn't, isn't that a biblical theme? Well, Old Testament more than New Testament, but I, I'm, I'm going to say it's not... Just it goes back to our earlier exchange. It's not just an Old Testament thing. Well, that's another day. I'll, <laughs> I mean, by the way, it, it it comes through. I think, and here I'm getting to the next point. I think it comes through mainly in the way Jesus interacts with things he doesn't like. You know, you vipers. 
You know, their 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 statements, their phrases. Uh, Matthew in Matthew, for example, talking about the Jews. You know, where he's going after the sort of the chief priests and the Pharisees and so forth. Kind of like this. There's that quality in G in Jesus. This, believe you me, I strongly believe that the love theme in the New Testament is the fundamental one, and yet it's not just that. Jesus, the, the statements attributed to Jesus are complicated on, on this topic. And if you doubt that, I think it's time for an adult ed class here at Westminster on that topic. I mean, sort of violence and the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Now, and by the way, you might start off in that class by reading Munzer. Because if you read this text, note, this is a brilliant piece of, shall we say, spin or exegesis if you want to emphasize the parts of the New Testament that have give encouragement to taking up the sword. Now let me put it more fully. Taking up the sword as an instrument of divine wrath. God is angry, God is mad as, and your calling as a good Christian is to exercise God's wrath on, and not just exercise God's wrath, but what? Pluck out, take out the evildoer, remove the evildoer. I hope you have a certain image is forming in your mind. Now, uh, one of the things I've been emphasizing, I did it with Luther, and let me stress it here too, what, what happens in this sort of Reformation stuff is the following. You become aware that when you turn to the Bible and start working on these themes, you're already into a kind of interpretive sort of project. And Munzer is interpreting the Bible in a very, from the point of view of anybody who believes at all in the pacifist sort of tendencies of the New Testament, in a kind of unsettling way. So, now note, the theme of this is the following. There are things that are happening in our society that have been happening for a long time of which God profoundly disapproves. That, that's the premise here. God hates these things. And a lot of them are in the church. God hates these things. It's time. I'm trying to get into the spirit of the things. It's time to stop this, to bring this to an end. And you princes... You princes. By the way, this is just what John Knox did in, in Scotland. And with very misogynistic language, he said, You princes, you guys, rise up against that queen. Queen. Yes, rise up. You know, the independence of the Scottish nation is at stake. Now, he's not talking about the Scottish nation. Munster's talking about something else. But it's the same spirit. Rise up. It's your duty. It's your Christian duty to take vengeance and to purge the church and to purge the state of all of this bad stuff. And then he says toward the very end of it, and if you don't, it should be done properly, and of course properly means the princes should do it. That's God's will. The princes should do it. But if the princes don't, the people may just leaves it there. Now, clearly, there's a just thinly veiled threat. If you guys don't take this responsibility seriously, there are going to be people who do. Munster is saying, am I clear? Now, what happened was there was an uprising, a profound uprising. 
There, it was, we today would call it a populist uprising. A populist uprising led mainly by people like Munzer, along with, of course, shall we say, elite of the peasantry. You know, people who were politically influential in their communities. And they did wreak violence. Boy, they took, they took matters into their own hands and did precisely the kind of thing which is in this document. You know, racked castles, seized monasteries, killed people. Took, and, of course, one of the key things always in this is land, took possession of the land, and dared the authorities to suppress them. And it took about a nanosecond for the authorities to say, okay, here we come. They raised, they, they took them a little time to figure it out, but they sent their armies in, and they just smashed them. Hundred, uh, uh, well over 100,000 people were killed on the peasant side, to put, in other words, the whole thing was brutally suppressed. It was a failure in practically every regard. Now, how's this related to the Reformation? I hope you sense already what I'm, you know, if, if this earthquake takes place in the middle of Europe with all this stuff going on, you know, and, and, and the Reformation is unfolding with this as the sort of background, but also, in a sense, the foreground, everybody's got to think twice about what this Reformation thing is all about. I assure you, it was not just about ecclesiastical reform. That's a pretty and sanitized version of it. Now, Martin Luther's reaction to this was the following, and it's a very important part of the story. Martin Luther's reaction to this was to be horrified. And not just to be horrified, but very quickly. He began issuing statements which summoned the leaders, the princes, no unified state at this point, the princes, to suppress this thing. And he characterized the peasants themselves as devil worshippers. He said, these devil worshippers rebelling against all authority, they need to be put down. That is the work of the Lord. Pardon me. That is the work of the Lord. I hope you've got two sides here talking about the work of the Lord. Now that had a profound effect upon Luther and Lutheranism. And the reputation of Luther, because from that point on, the peasants tended to view the peasants tended to view the Reformation as antithetical to their interests, not just in the German-speaking world. It's one of the reasons why, for the longest time, the rural populations in Western Europe were strongly allied with the church, because Luther prominently said, "Put them down." And it could easily be argued, well, he set him up for it, and then, and by the way, Munzer was, not surprisingly, what happened to Munzer? Well, Munzer was captured. He was in battle. He was captured. And boy, did he get his, shall we say, come up. And not only was he killed, strangled, then burned at the stake, you know, <laughs> one part of his body, the other part of his body was drawn and quartered, and the other part was burned just to sort of complete the picture. Yes, I guess. All right, so that happens. And then something else happens, which is fascinating. What about all these Anabaptists who are today, Mennonites in particular, pacifists? They do a 180 from this and say... That's just dramatic evidence that that kind of thing that Munzer was talking about is wrong. 
And they become, to this day, probably the Radical Reformation is the source of the strongest sort of commitment to pacifist kind of Christianity that we have. And they also drew the following conclusion, which is very much a part of the Anabaptist ethos. The world, the world, theologically understood, the secular world, is a bad place. It's full with full of terrible stuff. And therefore, as much as possible, we need to withdraw from that world and create a community. You know? Think of Pennsylvania. You know? Those people over there who withdraw from the world as little as possible in, in sort of interaction with the wider world create a countercultural community of peace and love. And the other thing, finally, that comes out of this is Lutheranism tends to be very closely associated with civil authority. Because Luther appealed to the civil authorities to suppress this rebellion. And that sort of set the stage because that's pretty much what people who were allied with Luther wanted to see happen. And once they did that, they got into the habit of saying, well, the civil authority is our handmaid. Now, one of the most fascinating things about what I'm going to be talking about next week, the Reformed tradition, starting with Calvin, is that they have a very different response to this. Very different that's next week. Let me stop. We are literally out of time, or do we have David? Let's take five minutes. Yes? So this, a lot of this sounds like what's happening in the Muslim world. You think? Well, I've said, and I'll just keep saying it over and over again, I think Western Europe in this period is very much like the Middle East today, or the Middle East is very much like what today is what that very much. I hope you see also how all the way through this, this just raises the most fundamental questions about the meaning of the faith. I mean, one of the big ones in, in this particular episode has to do with the relationship between the faith and the state and the faith and violence. You know? And it was kind of sorted out step one, step two in this process. I'm losing my house. See you next week. <laughs>